0: Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Livewire Radio. We're backstage at Revolution Hall in Portland. we got an amazing show for you coming up. Music from the band ON. We've also got a champion lawnmower racer named Bobby Cleveland. And we've got this guy, Peter Melman, one of the writers and producers of Seinfeld. He's got a new novel out. We're calling this show Get Off My Lawn as kind of an ode to middle age. I'm wondering, Peter, when was the first time that you started to really feel your age?
3: At about 35 years old, I remember playing basketball one night and playing really poorly and then going to a restaurant after and seeing like a 95 year old woman alone drinking like a scotch on her own. And I looked at her and I said, that's me in five years. That's pretty much middle age.
0: Are you like that wily veteran now who calls a lot of fouls? I hate that. I never call any fouls. You may not call inappropriate fouls when you're playing pickup basketball, but I stop the show all the time if it's getting out of hand. So that's my system. And that system starts right now when we head out on that stage.
1: From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire! With Seinfeld writer and novelist Peter Millman, lawnmower racing hall of famer Bobby Cleveland, tattoo artist Adam Craven, with music from On and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he'd like you to turn down that damn racket, he's trying to take a nap! Luke Burbank.
0: Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you, everybody, for coming out here to Revolution Hall in Portland. We've got a great show for you. Our theme this hour is "Get Off My Lawn." <laughs> We've got a writer named Peter Melman, who is one of the writers and producers of Seinfeld, and. He's written a really a great debut novel, and it's about a guy who's sort of grappling with a, a midlife crisis of sorts. And we've also got a tattoo artist coming out who will talk to us about the kinds of tattoos people request when they're trying to define themselves at around the midpoint of their life. Um, I have four tattoos, and I think the most recent, uh, which I got about five years ago, you could call it kind of an early midlife crisis tattoo... Uh, it occurred to me when I was going through this really kind of hard breakup and I felt like my life was really sort of falling apart. I, uh, I saw this painting, and the painting was of these African women, and behind them were these rolling hills, and some of the hills were yellow and dead, and some of the hills were green and lush. And the guy who made the painting said that it was about the fact that your life goes through seasons, and you never know what season of your life Uh, You're going to be in and that the key to getting through it is to hold on to your joy, right? He said, your joy is like a fire. It's like a flame. And sometimes when you're having a hard time, it's really, really small. And you just have this tiny little flame that you have to kind of keep protected in your hand. And then when you get into a lush green part of your life, you can kind of like let it out and it can turn into this huge fireball of joy. And that was exactly the message that I needed to hear At that moment in my life, and when I heard, when I looked at this painting and I heard this, I started crying thinking about it, which was weird because I saw this painting at a corporate training retreat (laughs) in the basement of a radio station I worked at. So it was pretty weird for everybody. (laughs) But I thought this is a really good concept for me to hold on to, this idea of holding on to your joy. So I got this tattoo on my left forearm of a bottle of joy dish detergent, <laughs> which is at exactly the part of my arm that when I'm driving and getting really mad, I can look over and just kind of peeking out from the edge of my, uh, my shirt uh, cuff is the top of this detergent bottle. <laughs> and it reminds me to hold on to my joy when I'm having a hard time. Um, nice. Thank you. So that is a true and uh, sort of slightly emotional story of why I have this tattoo. Is also the most boring story you can tell a person who is drunk in a bar and is asked, why do you have that tattooed on your arm? <laughs> so what I say is, that was my late mother's name, which is a lie because my mom is... Really alive. And also, her name was Susan. Her name was not even Joy. But it usually seems to placate the drunk person. And then I can get back to holding onto my joy, which is really why I'm probably at that bar in the first place. So that's what I'm thinking about here. Let's, um, let's get rolling here. With a show that's called Get Off My Lawn, you would be remiss if you did not start off the show by talking to somebody who knows from lawnmowers but not so much the mowing part as the racing them part. Because yes, that is a thing. Last year, Bobby Cleveland was inducted into the U.S. Lawnmower's Racing Hall of Fame. He holds the U.S. land speed record on a lawnmower of over 95 miles per hour. And he joins us now by phone from his home in Locust Grove, Georgia. Bobby Cleveland, welcome to LiveWire. Bobby, how did you get started racing lawnmowers?
4: Well, let me tell you. Back in the day when I was a young boy, my dad bought a snapper region rider, and I would cut the grass or otherwise I'd get a beating. And uh, I would try to cut that grass as fast as possible because I wanted to go play ball or go hunting or whatever. So I always said, if there was ever an Olympic where you... Cutting the grass as fast you can—I believe I could compete in that, no problem. Well, when I turned 18, I, at, and I, while I was going to college, I was working at Snapper, the lawnmower company there in McDonough, Georgia. Uh, and so I ended up after I got out of school, I went to work for Snapper and worked in engineering. And I worked at Snapper for 27 years. And you know, that first time when I went to work in there. I used, to, I used to cut the grass for free. But next thing you know, they were paying me to cut the grass. It was like heaven.
0: Well, let me ask you this. What, what makes a racing lawnmower a racing lawnmower? Like, does it still have to mow?
4: No, not with, our, with the United States Lawnmower Racing Association, which is the USLMRA.com. You have to take your blades off. So that's just a safety feature. We don't cut grass. We just go fast. But when we get through,
0: the draft is gone. I got to tell you, Bobby, you're a huge hit in Portland right now. <laughs> so you went you went almost 100 miles an hour on a lawnmower in the at the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah, right? What does that feel like?
4: Well, let me tell you, it scared me so good. I uh. I, I've never been that fast on a mower. I've rode around Atlanta Motor Speedway. I've been around Texas Motor Speedway, you know, at about 75, 80 miles an hour. But when I got over 90 miles an hour, man, that was scary. And I, and I was wondering, what the heck am I doing? But, you know, I, I, just, I just hung in there. i tell you what. It is, it is just amazing that you can go that fast on a lawnmower that's got a lawnmower engine and a lawnmower transmission with lawnmower tires. You know, to do that, if you go on YouTube, type in World's Fastest Lawnmower 2010, and you'll see the 104 Stabil uh, mower going across the salt flats. It sounds great.
0: We're talking to Bobby Cleveland. He is a lawnmower racing champ. He's in, as you probably know, the U.S. Lawnmower uh, Racing Hall of Fame. Uh so, Bobby, when you're actually just mowing your lawn at your house, how fast do you think you're going? I mean, what, are you going, like, under four miles oh, an hour?
4: Oh, no, I go about, about eight, eight, nine mile an hour cutting the grass, and I love to do that. Because, you know, it just fit me back to back when I was a little boy cutting my grass, with, you know, with that, so I wouldn't get a whooping. But, <laughs> uh, you know, so I enjoy when I get home, I'm out on the road a lot. I go around the country educating the people on how to maintain their fuel system, you know, and how stay bill to help, keep the gas fresh
3: and
4: just have a great time doing that. And then when I get home it's like, you know, I get away from everything, I go out there and cut my grass and then I look at my yard and see how pretty it is. It just makes me it just relaxes me. And it you know, it's like joy for me. Oh cut my grass. Bobby.
0: Way to way to make a call back.
4: That's right. So so you know that, that that gets me back to joy is when I'm cutting my grass. That wow. takes me down to, that takes me back to Bobness.
0: Well, Bobby, I have to say, between Bobby Cleveland and Luke Burbank, I feel like we have to have some kind of future in radio together. We have the two most made up sounding names I've ever heard. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, man. Well, listen, listen Bobby, thank you for, thanks for telling us about your, uh, your mower exploits. And uh, I'm gonna, next time I'm mowing my line I'm going to push it at least to five or six miles per hour.
4: <laughs> well, you know, actually, back in, whenever we started this, we'd tell people we'd go about 30, 35 mile an hour around the track, and they'd say, well, how do you run that fast? <laughs> so so we, we have a good time with a race, but I am officially the engine at the man at Gold Eagle. So you can go to my web, Facebook, Engine Answer Man Facebook, and send me a question. I'll I'll help you out with your engine problem.
0: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna Facebook message you, Bobby.
4: Okay, that'll be great.
0: All right, that's Bobby Cleveland, ladies and gentlemen, right here on Livewire Radio. That was lawnmower racing champ Bobby Cleveland. You are listening to Livewire Radio from Portland, Oregon, where we use goats to mow our lawns. I mean, they're on riding lawnmowers, so it's very messy and gross, actually. But anyway, we will be right back. Hey, this podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Ergo Depot, who don't want to bum you out, but would like to let you know that extended periods of sitting can increase your chances of heart disease and diabetes, even if you go to the gym. I know, sucks, right? Kind of annoyed that they even brought it up. The good news is, though, they have a solution. In fact, they have lots of solutions. Just go to their website, ergodepot.com, and you'll find tons of sit-stand desks, stools that are meant to keep your core engaged, which means you're less likely to keel over anytime soon. Ergodepot.com, harshing your mellow since 2007. Our musical guest this hour is an experimental pop band that's toured with Built to Spill and Smashing Pumpkins. Their music features heavily textured guitars and sugary, sweet three-part harmonies. Their latest record is Amor Ad Nauseam, which loosely translates to love that has become annoying or tiresome. They got the idea for the title by interviewing all of my ex-girlfriends about what it was like to date me. Just kidding. I hope. Please welcome On to Livewire.
5: Smile upon my face, head to a place with mouths too, but I don't need it. Why not bound in an open book? Like I'll be inside.
0: That was on right here on Livewire Radio. We are the radio show that is definitely not middle-aged. We just enjoy smooth jazz and Kirkland brand jeans and talking about how everything used to be better. We just like that stuff. If you found yourself saying yada, yada, yada to speed through something or scolded someone for double dipping or used the phrase not that there's anything wrong with it, even though maybe some part of you kind of thought there was something wrong with it, then you've felt the impact of Seinfeld writer and producer Peter Melman. Peter injected those phrases into the show, which makes him, uh, in our opinion, highly sponge-worthy. Peter's latest project is a funny, poignant novel about a Long Island podiatrist who does one little thing that's out of character and then watches his whole life change. It's called It Won't Always Be This Great. Please welcome Peter Melman to Livewire.
3: Hey, man. Hey. How are you? I am so good. You
0: and I are old old pals from Los Angeles, California, and look at us correct. now. Look at us now. Um, I love this book. I really, really enjoyed reading it, and I, when I'm reading it, I feel like I hear you talking, but then also you've said that the book has absolutely nothing to do with your life. It's not autobiographical
3: in any way. The book is absolutely not autobiographical at all. It's not one character that's based on anyone real or any event that actually happened. And yet, it probably reads like, it's kind of like a 300-page lunch with me. (laughs) So, I don't know how much that's selling the book, but you know. I did feel, though, that like this was a chance for you. It's a story of this guy's
0: pediatrist in Long Island, and Without giving too much away, he sort of does something impulsive, and his whole life feels like it's starting to change as a result. And it also felt, in reading the book, like it was a chance for you to just vent on various things that annoy you, (laughs) woven into the events of the book and the way people talk about things and the way people do things.
3: I mean, not necessarily annoy me, but, you know, observations. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's funny that we're talking about middle-aged crises or whatever because, you know, that's a, in a way the book the book is about two things. It's A, it's about a marriage that actually works, which I think is the first book ever of its kind. I have to say in, I mean, in, this guy, you love his wife. It's a first, you know, it's from the narrator is the husband and he is insanely in love with his wife still after 24 years, which was, you know, like a real challenge to write. Like... <laughs> Like, I I would make a crack about her, and then I'd feel bad because I liked her so much. But the book is also about, you know, you get to middle age, and yet your life is so precarious. You know, like, you could do one tiny thing wrong, and everything you've tried to build in your whole life, everything you are, can unravel in a second, you know? uh, How is it different writing uh, this book than,
0: say, writing a TV show like Seinfeld? Well, it takes longer. I mean, does it, though? I assume because it's a longer piece of work, but, of course, you Actually, edit and edit and edit and revise a half hour of television. I mean, you could, that could take a year to write, too, right?
3: It's, you know, all these things that people say are so hard are really not so hard. You know, I mean, you know, I started doing stand-up just for the hell of it because I got talked into it. This by... is recently you
0: started to yeah. do stand-up comedy at, uh, at what age? <laughs> um, at
3: 58. Well, that's and, usually the time to start. And you know, like all I've been hearing is like, "How? Oh my God, you're so brave!" And that's so, and st- nothing's harder than getting up there and being funny. It's not so hard, you know. It's really not that hard. Okay, but
0: but isn't some of this because you have had a pretty charmed career in that you you were a sports writer. You wrote for the Washington Post. You worked uh, for Howard Cosell, um, and then. What, you go out to L.A. and you bump into Larry David, who you kind of knew, and then just like, oh, maybe you should write for this new show called Seinfeld.
3: Yeah, and then, like, within, like, a year, I was loaded. (laughs) It was, you know, like, so amazing. (laughs) You know, I, I, I have to say, I've been thinking about this all day. I saw this girl in Starbucks this morning.
0: This was in L.A.? In before LA, you left. Uh, right
3: before I left. And she had, like, tattoos, you know, several tattoos. And I had this thought that, you know, it's, like, really good to date a girl who's got tattoos because then you know going in that you're with someone who's willing to make a huge mistake. <laughs> and... You know, that's, I was thinking, you know, like, that's the kind of line, like, you know, I wish I had Seinfeld still, <laughs> so I could shove that in. <laughs> so that's the good thing, I guess, about doing stand-up, because I could shove that in. Would you have a sense,
0: if, if you were working on an episode of Seinfeld where something like, not that there's anything wrong with it, or yada, 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 was going to be a big part of that? episode did you have a sense like oh this is gonna be big or were you surprised at the things that became almost ubiquitous
3: parts of our pop culture i was shocked first of all i have to say that not that there's anything not that there's anything wrong with it is not one of mine who came up with that larry david but that um, guy's a hack yeah (laughs) um i mean i had shrinkage sponge worthy and yada yada oh you and double dipping so that's good that's not bad but like, I never thought any of them... I never really thought any of them were going to do anything. The funny thing is, yada, yada, you know, in the same episode, there was anti-dentite. Uh-huh. And I really thought that was the one that was going to go through the roof. <laughs> so I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> so, like, shrinkage.
0: There was shrinkage. Shrinkage, yes. When you, like, when you you think that up and then you you pitch it or you put it in the script or however exactly it works and then years later you someone you just overhear someone in a cafe saying there was shrinkage what's that what's that
3: like i keep thinking that i'm supposed to be feeling better about this <laughs> you know like i just okay, you know, yada yada's in the dictionary and people say shrinkage and stuff like that. You know, like, I don't understand what I'm getting out of it anymore. You know, it's, I, you know, the fact that, you know, like, if because of writing that, I was awarded three months to go back to being 19 years old with what I know now, that would be a great reward. But, you know, I just don't see what, the, okay, it's in the dictionary, I'm not, that's not, what is it doing for me? I don't know. I keep thinking I should be feeling better about it because people keep asking. I feel fine about it, but I don't wake, wake up and go, oh, my God, yada, is me. You know, I mean, on the other hand, you know, when I talked to Kobe Bryant once, I did ask him, like, do you ever stop in the middle of the day and just go, oh, my God, I'm Kobe Bryant. I can't believe it. You know, and that's amazing to me. Uh,
0: what would you do if you were 19.
3: You know, probably the same thing I did then. <laughs> I'm sure i just blow it. You know? <laughs> We're talking you know.
0: to Peter Melman. He has a new novel out, a really funny and, and a well-written novel called It Won't Always Be This Great. Uh, I love that this has got to be one of the few novels I've read this year that has a blurb written by Marv Albert. Yeah. Which says... Uh, Peter Melman has written an amazingly funny and heartfelt novel, and then it just says, unstoppable. <laughs> and I like the idea that that's just how Marv Albert writes notes, like to his wife. He's like, uh, can we, we need more half and half, and those cherry tomatoes I like, unstoppable. You know, the
3: funny thing is, I mean, I, I know Marv a little bit, but I refuse to ask, solicit people I know for blurbs. You know, I just could not get myself to say, you know, to call up friends and say, could you say nice things about my book? You know, I had to to get Julia Louis-Dreyfus because I had to have the Seinfeld connection. But other than that, I didn't send it out to anyone I knew. I kept on just sending it out to people I admire from afar. So, you know, I got Steven Soderbergh and Aaron Sorkin, who I don't know. That was great. Marv was, you know, I, I don't know... You know about his sway in the literary community.
5: <laughs>
3: I think he's been described as
0: an unstoppable literary force. Unstoppable. <laughs> yeah, that's a better. That's a better, Marv.
3: I've been doing it since I'm twelve.
0: <laughs> um, you love uh, basketball and you love pickup basketball. We were backstage uh, comparing notes on the inside-out dribble, but, yeah. but also comparing notes on how. Depressing it is, speaking of middle age and get off my lawn, when you realize that you cannot physically do the stuff you used to do.
3: It's unbelievable how much I've deteriorated in like the last three years. I mean, like three years ago when I would say to you, I have so much game, I don't know what to do with it all, I meant it. Now, I don't know what, sometimes I go to the gym and my body hasn't even come with me. <laughs> mm. I
0: want to talk more about this, uh, about the book too, because I found it to be such a great read. One of the topics that you take on is kind of religiosity. Mm. And particularly in, the, in this book, in the Orthodox Jewish community, you are uh, Jewish. And a lot of the people who wrote blurbs for it were uh, rabbis and, and, and people from the Jewish community. Were you worried about how that was going to come off? To uh, Totally.
3: I'm shocked about that. I actually thought that there was a chance I would, you know, like go into some community and get shot.
0: Yeah, what, I mean, is that, a, is that something that you look at with a certain amount of frustration is the adherence to kind of rules like the character in the book is he's walking home because he basically doesn't want the orthodox community in his town. He's a kind of non-observant Jew. He doesn't want them to think that he doesn't recognize the Sabbath.
3: Yeah, he's a, a podiatrist in town, so he could be economically frozen out, which is absolutely true. in Long, There are certain Long Island towns and other towns. Where that's true, and that was the story I heard that initially touched off the entire book. That you know, like, you know, you could be an Episcopalian and own a dress shop, but if you're open on a Saturday in this town, they will economically freeze you out. Even if you know, so I I just, you know, imposing your beliefs on somebody else—that just uh, that is so wrong.
0: Have you gotten any uh, negative feedback though? Anybody written you a letter and said, "Hey, you, you, you know, you shouldn't Nothing. be putting this out there."
3: You can't offend anyone anymore.
0: Well, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to ask you about the plot of your next book, which you, you said you've already written. It's such a great idea for a book. What what is it about?
3: The next book is about a girl who's um, lives in the South. Her parents are kind of white trash, and she's in high school and. She knows for a fact that in a previous life she was Sigmund Freud. And she remembers everything about her life, but, you know, she remembers it also being miserable. So this time she just wants to have fun, and yet she can't stop herself from talking kids off ledges. This is a young adult novel. Yeah, it's a young adult novel. Do you think you could be
0: the next sensation in the young adult genre, Peter Melman?
3: I don't really see it happening.
0: (laughs) Peter Melman, thank you so much. That was Peter Melman. His book is It Won't Always Be... This great, and you're listening to Livewire, the show that wears socks with sandals and still remembers when MTV played music videos, damn it. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, maintaining relationships with local growers to offer customers organic produce free of pesticides. Whole Foods Market, keeping you from growing a third ear, because (laughs) ears are weird, and two is probably more than enough, if you think about it. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com.
6: Midlife crisis line, we're here to help. Where are you calling from?
5: Uh, Yeah, this is Kip. Uh, I do need help. I'm at a Porsche dealership.
6: Okay, Kip. Uh, Did something happen recently?
5: Well, my wife left me.
6: Okay, I'm sorry about that. Mm -hmm. All right, Kip, I'm going to ask you to get inside one of those cars.
5: Okay, I'm in a 2015 Red Boxster GTS. That's
6: a primo model. How does it feel?
5: Oh, wow, the leather feels nice. No, no,
6: no, no. I mean, how do you feel?
5: Oh. Um, desperately lonely and positive that no one will ever love me again.
6: Right. So the car didn't magically fix that. Then. Oh,
5: right. Yeah, I I guess it didn't.
6: Yeah, we also know from experience that the leather in the GTS does not respond well to tears. So yeah,
3: should probably get out of here then.
6: You should. Uh, There's a used Prius dealership right on Davis. Ask for old Tom Dwyer. He'll set you up nice. Okay, thanks. I appreciate it. No problem. Good luck. Midlife crisis line. We're here to help. Where are you calling from?
5: This is Brenda. I'm at a tattoo parlor. All
6: right, Brenda. Just calm down, okay? Is the tattoo artist with you? Yes. Can you put him on?
5: He wants to talk to you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is Lumpy.
6: Hey, Lumpy. How are the kids? Oh,
1: they're great, mate. Ashley's starting to cross in the fall, so wow,
6: positive. Yeah. wow, they grow up so fast. Yeah, Time do. flies. Anywho, uh, so what are we looking at here?
1: Oh, it's a bad one, mate. She's brought in two options. One says it's not a hot flash; it's a power surge. <laughs> and she says the second is the Chinese symbol for peace. But I'm pretty sure it says "death to all men named Lars," and I won't do that one. I've got an uncle named Lars, I'm really fond of him, all right?
6: Okay, pretty standard stuff. Why don't you put Brenda back on?
5: Yeah. Hello?
6: Hey, Brenda. Listen, I want you to think back 15 years ago. Do you remember your favorite song?
5: I don't know. Probably something like Higher by Creed.
6: Exactly, Brenda. Now, Creed was just a phase you were going through, right? I guess. You don't guess. You know. And... How would your current dating pool react to a take-me-higher tattoo on your lower back?
5: Oh, God. I have to get out of yeah, here. Yeah, I
6: thought so. Midlife crisis line.
5: Hey, this is Amanda.
6: Hi, Amanda. You don't sound old enough to be going through a midlife crisis.
5: Ew, I'm not. The elderly are gross. I'm calling for this guy. Milton, take my phone, yeah. but don't breathe on it. Okay, uh, ho ho You got Milton here. Is this Amanda's hot roommate? I hope you're hot. Are you hot? Hey, come drink with us.
6: (laughs) No, no, Milton, this isn't Amanda's roommate. Uh, And I'm just going to say it. Everyone knows it's a toupee. So look, just put down the glow sticks and go home to your wife, Carol.
5: How did you know my wife? You know what? Never mind, I'm on my way. At the Midlife Crisis Hotline, our operators are standing by to help you when you can't help yourself. The Midlife Crisis Line because you're getting older, not wiser. Midlife
6: crisis. You're gonna make some mistakes.
0: That's Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, Louise Chambers and Jason Rouse. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about uh, a few aspects of middle age tonight, aspects that because this is 2015, sometimes center around tattoos. Maybe getting a tattoo to prove that you're still vibrant and devil may care, or getting a tattoo removed because you no longer want the words no regrets tatted across your chest. And also, you spelled it no regrets. <laughs> here to talk about tattoos, middle age and otherwise, is a man who's been a tattoo artist for 18 years and has created over 15,000 of them from Oddball Studios here in Portland. Please welcome Adam Craven to Livewire. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Do you see people coming in at a certain age, and do you have a sense for the kind of tattoo they're going to request because they want to, you know, maybe try to define themselves or tell themselves that they're not actually getting as old as they are?
7: Yeah. I mean, every age group has their trends. I mean, in the late 90s, it was armbands, tribal work, and then now with the Internet... Pinterest and Google. You have a lot of people, people are getting
0: their tattoo ideas from Pinterest.
7: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Is it like a tattoo of like a really tasteful wicker basket?
7: <laughs> Usually it's something? somebody else's tattoo and they think this is what I've been wanting my whole life. But it's somebody else's tattoo already. Um, so they're just trends. And do you I mean, do
0: you feel yeah. a sense of uh, regret when <laughs> you're giving somebody a tattoo that they've requested that you know is not a great idea? I'm not the moral police, you know. I
7: I gotta pay my mortgage. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. uh, what are what's like the worst tattoo idea that you have not been able to talk somebody out of?
7: That's there's so many. I mean, honestly, there's just so many. I honestly they they blur together anymore. I just people will come in and they're like like what I call a life omelet. They just they want to get one tattoo, but they, want, they don't know exactly which one to, to choose. They don't want to choose, you know, my mom's really into gardening or my dad's really into building stuff. And, and so they just they put all of these ideas together, like 40 ideas, and they're like, okay, now make this a design. It's like, no, that's not really going to work. So you'll actually yeah. turn people down if they come to you with a particularly
0: bad life omelet? Yes, But, I mean, this is the thing. I've I've got four tattoos, and one of them, I have uh, some playing cards on my arm because I'm super original. And uh, the guy who did the work, he originally wanted it to be – he was trying so hard to talk me into the tattoo being of the king or, like, a suicide jack with, like, a sword going through his head and a crazy face. And, like, he wanted this thing to be a thing he wanted to make. And I was like, dude, this is going to be on my body until I get enough money to get it removed yeah. I should be allowed to make the choice. What's the negotiation? as Because you're putting something on someone's body that's
7: going to be there forever, but you also have an opinion about how it should look. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of people will, that are tattooers, they're really they have their own vision of what they want to do. And personally, I try to create what I call like the jeans and T-shirt of a tattoo, something that's classic, something that's going to go and last and look good for a long period of time, not something like, you know, bell-bottoms and feathered hair. You know, something like hairsprayed, whatever. Yeah, it just, I i don't want to make anything that somebody's going to think, oh, God, remember that? Oh, yeah, like, it, in the mid-'90s, everyone was like, well, um, I'm crazy, so I'm going to get the Tasmanian devil on me, but but dressed up like what I do for a living. And then, you know, like, there's the nurse Taz, or whatever, and, and so, you know, there's all these people around walking, like, hey, can you cover this with a tribal armband? And then, you know, 10 years later, they're like, hey, uh, can you cover the tribal <laughs> armband? <laughs>
0: Do you think, we're talking to Adam Craven, he's a tattoo artist here in Portland at Oddball Studios. I've always felt that even though people get a lot of tattoos, they probably shouldn't. They're not particularly well th- thought through all the time. I think there's a certain optimism about getting a tattoo. I speak as somebody who has some of them, so maybe I'm just trying to justify my own existence. But do you think it says something about people? Because there are also people who would never get a tattoo. Like, Is there is there something to be said for The way people go through the world, if they're a a get-a-tattoo-person or not get-a-tattoo-person?
7: Well, yeah. And it's changed so much in the last decade, even, because the TV shows I was tattooing in the mid-late 90s where, you know, it was just a lot of nefarious people that were coming into the shop and, you know, kind of rough guys and rough people in general. And now I've got soccer moms coming in, and they're like, oh, you know, I want all my kids' names, like, put into this, hidden into this tree of life. It's, and it turns into a Celtic whatever, and, you know, some sort of space gravy around it. And you're like, oh, okay, sure. And, but, Are you just rolling your eyes so
0: hard as you're doing the tattoo? How do you see what oh, you're no, working no, no, on? No, 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 no. I, I, have,
7: I have the glaze. I, I'm good. Like, it's no problem. I mean, I like to make people happy, and I want to I do the tattoo that they want. For sure, but I'm just going to, you know, and people, the, oh, man, I'm really going to work myself into something There's terrible. just going to be a
0: line of people at your shop nah. on Monday, one with a uh, life omelet tattoo that you yeah. gave him. the other one with a tree of life thing going, really, yeah. dude?
7: Torches and pitchforks.
0: That's yeah. what it's going to be on Monday, yeah. Uh, no. Did you once have to give somebody a tattoo that
7: read, trust no bitches? Uh, yeah, no, actually, I okay, so I had this guy, he came in. And he's like, "Yo, I want to trust no bitches on my neck." And I'm like, "Well, you, might not, you know, you know, you you might want to reconsider that. You know, you're not very heavily tattooed, and that's really a bad choice of uh, words." And so he says, "Well, this is what I want. I've been thinking about this forever." And so he says, "Hold on a second. I'll be right back." And he leaves, and he comes back, and he says, "We got to scratch that. My girlfriend says no." <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't say
0: "don't listen to no bitches." It said, "trust." You could right. still be not trusting bitches. Do you think
7: I should get it? It's like I don't think you should. Well, I, I'll trust you. I won't get it. But so he's he's trusting her. So, well, yeah, I guess he. Gets and you forgiveness own. is way easier than permission. So, yeah, you're asking this. people. Also,
0: don't realize I'm not trying to be cavalier or talk people into getting tattoos that are regrettable. But a lot of them can't. I've had a tattoo removed. Actually, I had an ex's oh. name on my arm. I had it laser burned off, and then replaced with my daughter's middle name. The story is too long to go into here on this radio show. Is that the wrong attitude, going into a tattoo?
7: <laughs> no. I mean, if you're going to get a name on you, just make sure you can't put X in front of the title of who they are. You know, you don't have ex-moms or ex-daughters or
4: ex-brothers. Oh, you,
7: know, you know, husbands, boyfriends, girlfriends, wives, those Anybody things. Anybody who you could
0: yeah. eventually refer to as your ex-something. Yes. Don't. Yes. Don't do that. Like your ex-Taz.
7: Yeah. I mean, you want to get a tattoo. And usually when you're getting a name put on you for a loved one, it's because you're searching so hard to, like, really, really just hold on to something that's probably not going well. No, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's funnier. I, there was a guy, I used to work up in Seattle, and this guy came in and he's like, oh, I'm getting a divorce, and I've got this huge portrait of my wife on my ribs. And she has this long hair, and, and he's just really sad. And he's like, what can you do with it? And so my coworker made her look exactly like Eddie from Iron Maiden, <laughs> and he, the guy was so pumped. I mean, it was really funny. So he's like, "Check it out!" And then when he saw her, he's like, "You know, the divorce thing." He's like, "Check it out. <laughs> You're Eddie now." <laughs> wow, that is yeah. the last laugh. Adam yeah. Craven
0: from Oddball Studios here yeah. in Portland. Thanks for coming Thank on the show. And now, here to weigh in on his thoughts on aging as Livewire's house poet. Please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesmen and the Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole, with Reflections by the Pool.
2: All right, let's hear it for the house band Sexy and Weird. Death drives a riding lawnmower. <laughs> too many old people now. Even death grows too old. They took away his driver's license when he plowed his car into a farmer's market. He said he was just doing his job, but the DMV isn't listening. Now he's forced to drive a riding lawnmower to make his faithful rounds. He cuts down soles, but he drives kind of slow which frankly sucks for him because the scythe used to fit great on the ski rack of the Subaru. Where do you stick a scythe on a John Deere X5 Yard King without the handle popping off the grass catcher when you're in hot pursuit of a 57-year-old aortal hemorrhage about to blow near the Jamba Juice? (laughs) People who should be dead are huffing and puffing around everywhere. That guy eating a Whopper over there isn't even breathing. Nobody fears him anymore. Who fears death when he's arriving at a noisy three miles an hour? It's getting a bit embarrassing, harder explained to the big boss. Take these kids frolicking on his lawn. He could just mow them down to reach the weekly quota, but the mower's scythe attachment doesn't reap saplings well. He'd have to climb off the porch, kneel on the ground, hand pluck them from the earth's grasp. He'd grass stain his holocaust cloak, his infinity-year-old back would tighten up. Forget about it. What a hassle. (laughs) He tries to heart attack them with thunder yelling, and tries to well falling down them with pecking seagull swooping, or tries to cramps drown them with swimming less than a half hour after eating. (laughs) Nothing's working. He's considering buying a drone. (laughs) And what's this he's reading now in his favorite magazine, Time? It says right here, the current generation, the same one trampling as pansies, might be the last one to die. Well, what's the use anymore? Soon you'll have 300-year-olds yelling at 200-year-olds to get off their lawn. What the hell is a black-cloaked skeleton with excellent farming and communication skills supposed to do in this economy? He gives up. It's three o'clock anyway. Time to go to dinner. <laughs> Depressed Death climbs onto his ex-five-yard king. <clears throat> Tries to mow down his lawn frolickers who easily move out of the way. And points his green dash ship towards Denny's. For the moon's over my hammy plate. And perhaps, if he's lucky, some bacon-eating low-hanging fruit. Thank you.
0: That was poet Scott Poole. Hey, if you're planning to be in the Portland area on April 11th, You might want to come down and check out a Live Wire taping to see how this public radio sausage gets made. We've got My Drunk Kitchen host Hannah Hart on the show, as well as author and hip-hop artist M.K. Asante. Soap tycoon and hemp activist David Bronner will be here, plus music from Jason Isbell and Mighty Oaks. You can find information at LiveWireRadio.org. All right, ladies and gentlemen, one more time, please, a Live Wire welcome for On... Wow, That was on right here on Live Wire Radio Well, announcer Jason Rouse, another hour in the books
1: Another sterling hour of radio entertainment
0: Wait, you were listening to the show we just did though, right? No, I
1: was in the back Oh
0: yeah I I had an old
1: episode of Car Talk on Oh yeah, those guys are great (laughs) Love those guys Seriously
0: What do you think you, what did you learn, man?
1: Uh, Peter Melman's comment about the woman with tattoos he saw at Starbucks. Yeah, I I have been looking for women with bad eyesight, mm-hmm. who make poor choices, low self esteem, dented cars. This is Portland. They are covered in tattoos. This is where yeah. I should be going. It's a These are the women for me. Board. Absolutely. If if they can commit, yeah, to to this bad idea for a little while, they can commit to me for a month and a half, two months.
0: Yeah, I'm that's worth all you it. ask.
1: I'm worth it. What about you?
0: Well, I have a, you know, it's bittersweet. This is going to be my, uh, my last show, doing You're this not. with you, Jason, because I'm going to start a new program with lawnmower racer Bobby Cleveland called Luke and Bobby Cutting and Running, which I think is going to be pretty wait. good. So look forward to that. Thank you, everybody. That is our show. We will see you next week. The bar is still open. Our thanks to our guests, Peter Melman, Adam Craven, Scott Poole, and on. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Ergo Depot. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Haumeister is our head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom and Dave Jorgensen. Jason Rouse is our associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone, Sean McGrath, and this week, guest writer Joanne Schinderly. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake, lighting by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, work for art the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find beautiful people. For more information about our show or how to become a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank, and we'll see you next week.
3: P-R-I, Public Radio International. Dear LiveWire,